there are some great sentences in literature. So if, you know, you remember high school literature. I, I didn't go much beyond that, but I went through this phase where I was trying to read every classical uh, work of, of literature, you know, so like, whatever, Charles Dickens or, you know, uh, Thomas Hardy. And, uh, you know, there's these lines. We all know the lines, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know, to be or not to be, those sorts of things. But there's these authors who can just in, in, infuse meaning and emotion and in words and just create so much um, story and, and, and connection with, with certain words. And there was a few that I wanted to share with you uh, this morning. Uh, one was Shakespeare. It's from Romeo and Juliet. And it's such a great quote. What light through yonder window breaks. You know, this is Romeo. Wives, wouldn't you want your husbands to say this? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Wouldn't you like to get a card from your spouse that had something so sappy and romantic? I know some of you would be like this. My husband did not write that. A.A. Milne uh, is kind of an unappreciated, maybe, author. Of course, he wrote all Winnie the Pooh stuff, and we think of them as kid stories, but they're so good. Some of the quotes, um, this is such a good one. Don't, this is Winnie the Pooh. Of course, A.A. Milne wrote it, but don't underestimate the value of doing nothing. Some of us are like, amen. Yes. <laughs> Preach it, brother. Um, of just going along, listening to all the things you can't hear and not bothering. I, I think that's so good. I, I've really tried to make it a practice of like not bringing my phone out when I'm waiting in line and just like just being in the moment when you want to be distracted and just, you know, have something else to, to consider. The Bible, I think, fits in with these great works of literature. Um, there's these sentences in the Bible that are just so well constructed and so full of meaning, and they just, you can unpack them for years and, and continue to understand new insights uh, out of what they were saying. And it's, it's almost as if the Bible was divinely inspired, you know, but we read it and these words become familiar. And so I think we just kind of rush through what scripture is actually communicating to us. Um, for example, the verse that we're going to be in today, the verse that James read for us, a passage, but specifically a verse, um, I think is like that. There's just so much depth that we read it and we're like, yeah, 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 okay, I got it. I've heard that before. And so I, what I want us to do is read it, and we're going to go through it just kind of like piece by piece and try to unravel a little bit of what the story is. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, 18 uh, through 21. Um, but I just want you to appreciate the narrative for what it is and what it communicates, because I think what the narrative communicates is profound. It is profoundly life-changing. It is not going to be something new. You're not going to hear something this morning that you're like, well, I've never thought of that before. I learned something new. But I think that you might hear something that will, will coalesce the things the Spirit is doing in your life in a way that is transformative and that will transform you. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you are like, yeah, yeah, of course, that's classic Christmas verse. That's, you know, what Grandpa reads every Christmas, or that, yeah, that's a Christmas verse. Of course, we know the story. But I want you to think about and slowly consider some of what is being said in this story. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. Um, it's, the word birth is actually this really great word. It's a Greek word that you know, but you don't know you know. 
Uh, it's the word Genesis. The word birth is the word, genes- the word Genesis, which is really interesting because isn't Genesis an Old Testament book and wasn't the Old Testament written in Hebrew? That's strange, but they actually use a Greek word for the title of the Old Testament book of Genesis. It's, it's, it's the beginning. This is the beginning of Jesus. How cool is that? This is the start. This is the, the introduction of Jesus the Messiah, how he came about. Now, this is verse 18 in the text, but there's actually 17 verses we skipped over. I didn't skip over them because they're not important. They are important, but I skipped over them because I know we would lose some of you and you'd kind of, your eyes would glaze over. I have a picture of the first 17 verses uh, on the screen here if you want to look at that, if you want to read it. But the first 17 verses are the first century version of a 23andMe test. This is Ancestry.com on a page here. And it was very important to people to know their ancestry, to know that they were connected and to who they were connected uh, and who they were related to. And it was just being part of the family of Israel. But in particular, this Joseph happened to be related to David, who was kind of a significant guy. Now, most of you have probably, if you've ever done one of those DNA tests, a lot of you have, it's kind of fascinating to find out like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm related to someone who uh, once sat in a room where the Queen of Denmark also sat or whatever. It's the claim to fame that we have. But Joseph had this claim to fame where he was a direct descendant of David. That's pretty cool. I mean, if you're on the playground and you know how kids get and they're bragging, well, my dad's better than your own, my grandpa or my whatever. Joseph could roll out, hey, by the way, I am a great, 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 so many greats, grandchild of David. And, and that was, of course, important, important to who uh, Joseph was. Now, this is, so this isn't just this go-to Christmas verse. This is an important like, context for what's going on. This is how the birth, the genesis of Jesus. I want you to hold on to the idea of Genesis because we're going to circle back to that in just a second. Um, pledged. Look at this next word in here. The word pledged. Go to the next slide if you would. The word pledged. This, was, this week was the first time this particular fact hit me. You know, I'm just reading it. Um, it, it there's a, another slide if you want to go forward to underlining the word pledge because that's what the one I want you to focus on. Um, I didn't think about this till this week that Joseph and Mary didn't pick each other. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I mean, you guys probably all are well aware, arranged marriages, all that sort of thing that happened in the first century. I don't know why I didn't think about that. I guess I just assumed that Joseph and Mary, you know, they grew up down the block from each other. They were childhood sweethearts or, you know, they were paired together in chemistry class and something like that that had happened and they, you know, sparks flew and, you know, chemicals flooded the brain and they fell in love and they decided to get married. I don't know why I didn't think about the fact that, like, no, this was a legal agreement, This wouldn't have made a very good romantic comedy. You know, they wouldn't have like Tom Hanks or, you know, Meg Ryan starring in this movie because it was just two parents saying, hmm, we got to find a family for our uh, child to wed into. What's the most beneficial for us? That family looks good. And so you you started signing on the dotted line, literally. The groom's parents would pay the bride's parents. The bride's parents would pay the happy couple to kind of help them get started in life. I mean, it 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 was a contract. It was like a legal agreement. Which, you know, so like for us, when people get engaged today and then decide to break it off, it's, it's no big deal. You know how we break it off today? We're just like, we're not going to get married anymore. That's it. And it's kind of a bummer if you've already ordered the invitations and stuff like that. But it's, you just decide not to. But in their day, it was like you had to literally unwind some legal contractual agreements. And so you see that what is about to come is really a twist for the family. This is a really big deal for them to have all this changed. Remember, uh, a lot of you remember Fiddler on the Roof, right? Fiddler on the Roof, great movie, wonderful movie. 
That, that's the whole premise of this movie, was Jewish cultural norms about matchmaking. You remember the song in there, Matchmaker, Matchmaker, right? Make me a match. And of course, the girls are hoping that the matchmaker picks somebody good for them. But then the older sister, who's, you know, kind of, well, in the story, kind of the song, A Wet Blanket, she's like, we don't really get to pick. We just, because we're poor, we have to take whoever the matchmaker brings to us. And I think that's such an interesting idea. Like, Mary, I mean, I don't know. Mary did, like, the first time she met Joseph was like, oh, I don't know. It's kind of short, you know, kind of ugly. I don't know what it would have been like. The story in The Fiddler on the Roof, I was reading the lyrics to that song today because, you know, I love all the songs in that. And it's so funny because the girls meet the matchmaker and they're like, oh, tell me about my guy. And, and the matchmaker's like, oh, yeah, he's very tall. And, and then the matchmaker, well, he's tall from side to side, you know, he's fat. But there's a legal contract. So when you get to verse, uh, uh, the second part of verse 18, it says, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. And that's a big deal. And I know you know this. I know we know the scandal. But I'm not sure we know the extent of what this would have been like to unwind those legal entanglements that these two people had been in to this point. And I, I'm very interested in the word found. Again, don't want to make too much out of it. But it's interesting to me that it doesn't say, and Mary confessed, Mary told it was she was found to be pregnant because evidently Mary had kept going to the local Target and getting baggier and baggier clothes. I don't know. Maybe she was trying to hide it. I mean, you can imagine Mary's parents were like, we don't know what to do. How do we do this? What, what do we do here? She was found to be pregnant. And then there's the Holy Spirit. And, and this isn't a Holy Spirit sermon, uh, although the Holy Spirit is going to show up here as well. We're going to be continuing our series on the Holy Spirit uh, next week. But there's the Holy Spirit right in the thick of it all. And I, I think this is interesting. This has been pointed out by other scholars and commentators. This isn't original to me. But it's very interesting that at the genesis of Jesus, at the recreation of humanity, there is the Spirit. At the creation of the world, at the genesis of the world, there was the Spirit. The Spirit is just part and parcel of the human experience and what God is doing in the world. You just never get too far away from that, although the Holy Spirit doesn't make any appearance in any of the Christmas carols that I know or doesn't make an appearance in the Nativity or any of that stuff. It's just we, we kind of forget about the Holy Spirit. But I do want you to notice something. This is, even, this is just one verse, right? We've just been looking at this one verse and how much is contained in this one verse. But I want you to notice something. Like, this is the story of Jesus. The one, the person, the Holy One of God, the descendant of David, the child of promise, the hope promised in, in Isaiah chapter 11, the mighty God, the wonderful counsel. This is him, and he shows up into the world in, the, in this, like, scandalous situation. I've said this before, but if you are making up a story about Jesus, why would you make this up? Why would you do that? If it's propaganda, why would you make this up? Why don't you make it sound way cooler than it really was? Unless there is truth here. I, I, I've told some of you before, I'm super fascinated by North Korea and the propaganda kind of surrounding the dear leader, you know, Kim Jong-un. But Kim Jong-il, his father. Uh, evidently, there's an, an official North Korean biography about him that, that he had written. And as you can imagine, it is unbelievable. Like, this is the greatest human that has ever lived. He was born at the top of a mountain. You know, there were like, I mean, just unbelievable. But one of the things, one of the little details that I just loved about this that I thought was like, why in the world did they include this? The very first time Kim Jong-un played golf, he played 18 holes of golf, 
uh, he got 11 holes in one on that first round of golf, according to his official biography. And then, I guess I don't know how he did on the other holes, and then he never played golf again. This is the official North Korean propaganda. And they get it. They get it. If you're going to make it up, go big. Just make it up, whatever. If you're going to make it up, make up whatever you want. Why not have Jesus born at the end of a rainbow and Mary rides in on a unicorn? I mean, why not have any of that? If you're going to make it up, why have Mary be a single unwed mother that they have to convince her, her, her fiancé to stick around through a dream? Like, why do that? If the Bible is propaganda, it's not very good propaganda. And there he is. He's born through the Holy Spirit. And that's one sentence. That's one sentence in the story. And there's so much there. But let's go on. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Because, this is so fascinating to me, because Joseph, her husband, remember, they're, because it's a legal agreement, even though they're not married, they use terms like husband. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. So Joseph was a good guy, followed the law, seemed to love God, wanted to do what pleased God. Because he wanted to do what pleased God, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace because he's a good guy. Mary is clearly messed up. I don't want to make it harder on her than it already is going to be with this choice. So I'm going to put her away or I'm going to divorce her quietly. And this is so fascinating to me. Joseph doing the right thing with all the information that he has at, his, at hand decides that the right thing according to the law is to divorce her. And God has to intervene and say, hope, hit the brakes, buddy. This is kind of a special situation. And by the way, divorce, husband, divorce, the, the, it's a weird word choice, but that's, that shows you how legally entangled they were. They had to undo this whole thing. It wasn't a conscious uncoupling like Gwyneth Paltrow and what's-his-face. It was like actually had to undo this whole thing. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, but after he had considered this, so he had decided this is what I'm going to do. We're, me and Mary, we're done. We've been pledged together since we were eight years old, but now we're done. Um, he, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, I want you to think about this from the perspective of Joseph trying to convince his parents and his friends of what he's about to do. Uh, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, remember the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So God's revealing the plan to him. There it is, the spirit again, right in the middle of the action. But imagine Joseph having this dream, waking up and thinking, okay, all right, I guess we're going to go through to this uh, with this. And he goes to his mom and he's like, mom, got some bad news. Mary's pregnant. Mom, of course, devastated, like the scandal. Can you believe it? And he says, but good news, I'm going to stay with her. And you can imagine mom probably, I don't know, we don't know Joseph's mom. Doesn't seem like she would support that decision. Um, and I don't know, you can't, it's very dangerous to make any conclusions based on what scripture doesn't say, but there is no grandma at the nativity scene. Grandma doesn't show up. There's no mention of grandma. We don't know, maybe she was there, it just, Bible just didn't, you know, see fit to, to include that, but there's no grandma there. So you can imagine this, 
the family drama. And this is sometimes true, and, and I don't want to get off topic here, this is a little off topic, but sometimes to do what God is asking us to do means to go against what the people around us are wanting us to do. It is, it's, it's tough sometimes because they think you're making morally incorrect decisions and you're like, no, oh, I got to follow God. This is what God wants me to do. And the world around you is saying, no, 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 that is immoral. I mean, imagine Joseph having to like wrestle with this with his friends and his family. Now, we get to the heart of this whole thing. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The heart of this whole thing. And this is a familiar idea to you, but I just want to challenge you to understand how difficult a time we have holding on to this truth in our world. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says this. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus or Yeshua. Why? Do you have to name him Jesus? Because that means he will save or God saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. Oh yeah, that's yeah, pretty typical verse about Jesus, sin, save, being saved. Those are all good church words that we're, we're, we're familiar with. We understand the concepts. We get the gist, Patrick. Got it. Let's move on. I, uh, bear with me for a moment because I think we've got to talk about something really important that gets lost in the shuffle of Christianity and our involvement in the world. When I was about uh, six years old, I, uh, me, our family was visiting our grandparents, who at the time lived in Los Angeles, and they, uh, they lived in an apartment complex, and the apartment complex had a pool. Of course, like six-year-old me, very excited. My mom had taken me to swimming lessons, so I knew how to swim. Uh, but it was me, and it was my younger sister, Katie, um, and we were in the pool, and my grandfather was sitting right next to the pool watching us, you know, making sure we're doing okay. Katie had a floaty, and she was sitting in the floaty, and uh, I was pulling her around the pool on a string. So she's sitting there, and I'm pulling her around, and this is fun. You know, I'm, I'm a very kind and gracious older brother, as my sister and sisters and brothers will attest. And I decided after a few minutes this wasn't fair. It was my turn to sit in the floaty, and Katie needed to pull me. Fair is fair. So I went to the edge of the pool, and I don't know, my grandfather probably just wasn't paying attention for a split second, and I pulled her out of the floaty and put her in the water, and I got in, and I was ready for her to pull me around. Well, what you don't know is that Katie cannot swim, nor can she touch where we are, where I have dropped her off on the floaty. She's living because she's in the floaty, and I have just taken her out of the thing that's keeping her alive. And so I'm sitting there, kind of like, all right, let's go, let's do this. And she's blub, 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 blub down to the bottom of the pool. Just heads up, spoiler alert, some of you have met Katie, so she turns out fine. I mean, this may have caused a little bit of brain damage, but other than that, she was, she was, she was perfectly fine. But I'm sitting there waiting for something to happen when my grandfather, fully dressed, you know, and if, a, if, a, if an adult human gets into a pool fully dressed, something has gone wrong. And he dives in and he rescues her. And I'm sitting in my little, you know, pink flamingo floatyville watching all this unfold. Dives in and rescues her, saves her. She's fine, you know, goes about her life. Has a wonderful, productive life. Even if I had realized what was happening, I could not have saved her. I couldn't have done anything. If I had, even if I had realized what I had done, and I caused the problem, there's no doubt about that. But even if I had realized that, I could not save her. Katie could not save herself. We were, we were in a situation of our own making, my own making, to be fair, 
of our own making that we needed outside rescue. It could not happen internally. All right? I'm going to set you up for what we're about to talk about. Now, this is going to seem like a little bit of a left turn, but I think that many of you probably even today or in the last few days, I talked to somebody at the first service who said, I was thinking about that last night. I think you have had the question in your mind sometime this week, what is wrong with the world? What in the world is wrong with everybody? Like the world is a mess. Now, every once in a while, maybe when you're, you know, driving through a light display and people are singing Christmas carols, you can for a moment feel like everything's wonderful and good. But as soon as you get back to reality and you see the headlines, you're like, everything's a mess. Everything is bad. Why are things this way? It feels like the world is drowning and needs to be rescued. That's what it feels like. In fact, the world has lots of solutions for what is going on. They have lots of solutions because they think the problem is one thing, and here's the solution. A lot of very smart theological thinkers and scholars have started to note that a lot of the ideological um, values of the world have very religious underpinnings. Uh, Mark Sayers, great author, great speaker, talked about that these ideologies have religious architecture. So you can see these different ways the world thinks, hey, here's the problem with the world and here's the solution. But they have very religious ideas around them. They don't maybe use the word saved or salvation, but sometimes they do. Um, but they have very religious ways of thinking about them. So for, for example, um, well, there's a bunch of examples I could give. Uh, the, uh, and this isn't on the screen, but I was reading an article this week that said science will save us. I thought, that's interesting, save us, meaning that we're, we're, we need to be rescued and science will save us. And this person's, uh, this person's premise was that medical advancements and technology will save the world. That was, the, that was their whole premise in the article. Now, it's kind of religious sounding. A lot of you in this room think that the problem with the world is maybe liberal ideology, progressivism. That's the problem with the world, and conservatism will save us. If everybody would just think like me, then the world could be saved, because everybody that thinks like them are causing the problems in the world. And I just put this up there. Don't, don't get me wrong. You could flip those words around, because everybody, you could, there's people, lots of people in the world that think the problem with the world is conservatism, or people who think, who are right-wing, and if we just, if everybody just thought like me and voted like me and behaved like me and recycled like me, then the world could be saved. That's what people are, that's, the, that's out there in the world and you've seen it. Some of you listen to hours and hours and hours of talk radio that make that point constantly. Some of you listen to podcasts that make that point. And I don't care about where you are on the ideological spectrum, that's the point they're making. The problems, all the problems with our country today go there. It's this group that's causing the problems. And if everybody could just change their thinking, we could be saved. We're drowning because of this ideology, and we could save ourselves if we could get everybody to think the right way, right? Did you know, I don't know, have you ever met somebody who you agreed with politically, but they still made bad decisions? They still did things you didn't agree with? They still committed sins that you would think are bad for the world and for themselves? Sure. Yeah, evidently, having a certain political ideology doesn't actually save people from their sins. 
Um, there's other people who will say, well, you know what, the world, the problem with the world are things like poverty and hunger and, and, and lack of employment. That's the problem with the world. And if we could create income equality, we could save the world. We could pull ourselves up out of the, the water that we're drowning. We could save the world. if It's just income inequality because people commit crimes because they're poor and they're hungry. Is that true? Yeah, true. Uh, do rich people do bad things sometimes too? Yeah, yeah. Evidently, being rich doesn't solve all the problems either. I, I don't, do, do, do people who are poor commit crimes? Yeah, <laughs> and so do people who are, are rich. Hmm, maybe that's, maybe that's not the exact thing. Now, is there anything wrong with income equality? No, it's great. We want to we eliminate poverty. Does anybody have a problem with like saying poverty's bad and we should eliminate it? No, I'm not saying that. But is that going to pull us out of the pool that we're drowning in? Mm -mm. Some people will say, you know what the problem with the world is? It's ignorance. If we could just teach everybody the right thing, then the world could be saved. If we could just get everybody to know the right truth, the world could be saved. It's just, it's education. Now, is it true that more, there is a lot of ignorance in the world and more education would help? Yes, of course it's true. Have you ever met smart people who make bad decisions? Yeah. Education didn't rescue them. Education didn't save them. Are these noble pursuits? Sure, of course, yeah, fine. Vote a certain way and eliminate poverty and educate. All those are fine. I'm not talking that those things are bad. But if your hope, if your eternal hope for the world is in these things, then it is misplaced, period. End of sentence. It is misplaced. The things, I don't know, you could just read the news, but uh, what, I mean, Elon Musk, what, what would he say is going to save the world? Technology, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, people with good technology never make mistakes. Oh. Some, some people think, uh, well, Ted Kaczynski, he thought technology was going to ruin the world and the elimination of it would save the world. All these, all these different ideologies all competing for the same truth. Some, some people, let me, let me say this, and this is kind of important to say, I've, I feel like I've seen this a lot. A lot of people, and people in the church too, I've heard a lot of people say, um, I just can't wait for 2021. Just can't wait. Can't wait for 2020 to be over. And 2020 has been kind of a bummer of a year overall. I did talk to somebody this morning that are like, 2020 has been great to me. Well, you're the exception that proves the rule because there's a lot of people that have not been huge fans of 2020. 2020 is going to be memorable for, not, for the right reasons. But a lot of people, I, I can't wait till 2021. It's going to be so great. Get rid of this year. It's been awful. I can't wait, wait till next year. I, I've, I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm at heart an optimist. But I'm just telling you, if you think that once the, the, the gong strikes midnight on December 31st, somehow January will be magically better, I think you might be placing your hope in the wrong things. Because 2021 is going to be very similar to 2020. And our hope isn't in a calendar year anyway. That's never been what it's about. A calendar year won't save us. Time won't save us. That's not what's going to make a difference. Well, but here's the truth. The world is looking for salvation because everybody believes that we're drowning. But they're looking in the wrong places. Politics, technology, education, economics, legislation, ideology, none of those things are going to save us. If everyone had money, education, right political beliefs, we would still find new and creative ways to drown ourselves. And we would still need someone outside to rescue us. 
And the same pattern, it's been repeated through history, by the way. Just read a history book. They have thought the same things at different points in history, saying the world will be saved if everybody just agrees with, with, with you know, Roman, uh, just let us enforce peace through violence. Everybody, you will, you will love it. It's great. And, and throughout history, the world has thought different things would save it, and we're just on repeat. It's Lucy and the football over and over and over again. This time, Lucy won't move the football, but she will. Even, even within the church, I feel like we see people all the time who are like, yes, God, Jesus, sure, I love him, he's great, as long as he is subservient to my particular ideology. As soon as Jesus challenges my ideology, well, then that's not what he really meant. That's not what he really said. One clear message of scripture, the truth that we need to be locked into is the problem with the world is, always has been, and always will be, is what... Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, is sin. That's the problem with the world. Oh, Patrick, that's not very cool. That's not very modern. That's not very enlightened. That's the truth. The problem has always been sin inside the human heart. And the only solution always and has forever been Jesus. We need to be rescued but we cannot pull ourselves up out of the deep end. We cannot do it. Your ideology cannot do it. The only person that can do it is Jesus jumping into the deep end with us and pulling us to the surface. It's always been that. It's always been that truth. Now, may I be so bold as to say that if you are putting your hope for salvation in anything else... It is misplaced and it will fail you in anything else. In the church, we get so distracted by this truth. And I think that's why God is like, how are we going to keep people focused on the fact that the problem is the sin in the human heart and the solution is Jesus? I don't know. Maybe if we make them remember it every single week, they would get it. Because I, I remember being a kid thinking like, why do we do communion every week? Well, it's because you forget every day. That's why we do it every week. Maybe we should do it every day. The problem has always been sin. And I know we don't like that term. It's not very modern. But the solution has always been Jesus. And so when we think about Christmas, I know I love the trappings of Christmas and Christmas carols. And we're going to get to sing some here in just a few minutes. But when we think about all this, I, I don't, when you're listening to talk radio, when you're listening to podcasts, when you're watching the news, when you're reading those books, if you can always remember that the world is just trying to pull itself out of the deep end and it's never going to work, that it will always need, it will always need Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. We're going to wrap up with a word of prayer. And, uh, and then we're going to take communion together. we got a song that we'll play while you're taking communion. Following that song, I'm going to invite David up to give us a few instructions for those of you that are uh, going to participate with us outside. It's beautiful outside. I'm sure it's plenty warm. I think it would be a nice change of pace for us to be together uh, and, and singing together. Uh, even if it's limited, even if it's not 100% the way we'd want it, I think it'll be good. So let's pray. Let's remember that our hope is Jesus. And, uh, and then let's take communion, remembering that truth together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. Uh, God, this is a simple truth that we just have such a hard time holding on to deeply. 
Lord, I know that we're going to leave here and we are going to see headlines. We are going to hear podcasts. We are going to read books that, that tell us the real problem is this ideology or that and the real solution is something else. But God, I pray that the Spirit would constantly remind us of the truth. That the real problem is sin in the human heart and the only solution is Jesus recreating our hearts so that we can pursue a relationship with you. Help us remember that as we take this communion together. It's in Jesus' name we pray.